check is flat. Give me up. This is the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. He's been broken three times. He refuses to give in. He might do it. Look at that guy. Look at Blake Oh, my God. Hello again, friends, and welcome to mile 157 of the Seconds Flat Running Podcast presented by Columbus Running Company. Travis here with you. Got Phil alongside. Phil, we got a big episode this week, so let's go ahead and dive right in, buddy. How are you? Oh, I'm doing good. It's good to be here on this lovely uh, Labor Day, last of summer. Cooler weather's coming in, and it is time for marathon season. Gosh, I sure hope the cooler weather's coming in. We got a little taste of it, a little false fall for a few days up here, and now it is back Uh into the 90s. We had big action overseas this weekend as American athletes get a sweep at Ultra Trail Mont Blanc UTMB. Jim Walmsley, the Coconina Cowboy, (laughs) a legend of Western states. He moved overseas to get this victory, and he got it. And in the women's race, it was Courtney DeWalter. She's who I want to talk about. I know this is a big deal for Jim Walmsley, and it's been hyped now for years of him trying to break through at UTMB. But she, to me, is the storyline. Phil, off the cuff, is this possibly the greatest year ever by an endurance athlete? Ooh. Yeah. Well, think about what she can Possibly back to Anderson, uh, you know, with her fourth place finish at Leadville back in the 90s. She's won Western State. She turned around a couple weeks later and won UTMB. Oh, there's an easy argument for it, certainly. Yeah, the course record at Western, huge performance. I mean, just crushing the course record there and competing amongst the top men. A heck of a year from her. So, yeah, a great weekend for American ultra runners in Europe. Before that, we wrapped up the world champs. We last spoke to everyone just before world champs started and previewed some of the stuff that excited us. I thought this was among the best weeks of track and field that we have watched in a long time, Phil. Uh, It didn't, didn't disappoint track, field, the throws, the jumps every single day. And the timing was great because it was like midday. I could record it, come home, watch it in the evening. Uh, I didn't miss an event. What what were your favorite moments? Well, first was the, I got to give a shout out to Peacock. And that was a useful subscription for me to have Mm -hmm. because I'm like, you enjoyed having some stuff on in the background in the afternoons, but then coming home and, and pulling up the highlights and replays of the races that I wanted to see. No, it was a fantastic week of of just some some really great races. No, a- asking about the the favorite moments, to me the the athlete I was most excited to watch going in was Safan Hassan. Mm. You know, coming off of her London victory back in the spring, you know, she was going for the fifteen hundred five k and ten k. Mm-hmm. Um, but probably her race against Faith Kipiegon in the fifteen hundred was almost a foregone foregone conclusion, but really exciting to see, to see, you know, Kip Yagon, of course, is 
without question, the GOAT of the 1500. She had that race in total control. But then that last 200 with Hassan, you know, she's down maybe 20, 30 meters, closing hard with 100 meters to go. And Kipiegon just holding her off. You know, she still won handily with maybe, you know, a 10-meter lead, but but pulling for Hassan to, to try to close that gap and shut down that space. And she had a, a solid... Solid world championships for her. So that was that was probably my race of the race of the championships. Yeah, she was involved in a, a stumble early in the week, and mm-hmm. it wasn't the only stumble. Uh, I thought almost bookending the week of racing with uh, Femke Bol and the Dutch team. Uh, first, she falls on the track in the mixed relay at the beginning of the week. Midweek, she wins the four hundred hurdles. And then the redemption run in the women's 4x4 relay, one of the last races on the track. It was a remarkable performance as she came from third very late to pass Mm -hmm. two for the victory. The energy, the enthusiasm, and just the raw emotion from her afterward was so much fun. You can hold a world champs in Europe anytime you want. As far as I'm concerned, it was very hot, but we'll, we'll deal with that for the the crowd engagement that we had. It, I mean, mm-hmm. it, was a, it was a packed house of 30,000 plus every day in the beautiful city of Budapest. I mean, how breathtaking were those uh, shots when they panned out? My close runner up is Ryan Krauser. Uh, the second, mm. the second farthest throw in world history with blood clots. <laughs> and the night before mm-hmm. we were discussing if he would even be able to compete uh, that was really a stunning performance, but there were a ton of stunning performances. There were so many great times and distances. The marks were were fabulous. So a wonderful week at World Champs. We will see it on this scale again in about a year at Paris. Oh, coming uh, back next summer with Paris 2024. Yeah, this is the beauty of this uh, cycle that everything kind of gets jammed into a few years with Tokyo postponing. Uh, we come right back with... Budapest off of Eugene. Mm-hmm. Now we go Paris. Then we'll go to Tokyo again for the world champs. Yeah, great stretch to see some remarkable athletes. Phil, let's start with some questions from listeners. We have a couple great themes here to get into. First, we were asked to give some training updates because we haven't done so in a while and uh, had a listener say it's fun to get some ideas based on the training <laughs> that we are doing. So, your training has been a bit disjointed for several months, Phil. I, I mocked it a bit last week, but there's legitimate reasons as to why. You were entered in the field for the Chicago Marathon on the 8th of October. I believe that was the elite field. I saw a release from, uh, is that Bank of America that sponsors Chicago? Uh, that, well, it- I got a little, I got scared with uh, Cosmo and your uh, your athlete Jamie up there in Ohio talking trash. and. <laughs> Yeah, that that was too much for me, man. So I no, the, I decided to go and hurt myself and give me an excuse to to not have to face those guys. The <laughs> last official update I think I saw from Chicago said something like Kiptum, Sisson, Dr. Phil, all on the start uh-huh. line together. But you have since withdrawn. It's a DNS. Uh-huh. Uh, okay, so tell us what's going on and then what the next target no, is. No, so I wouldn't even call this a training update, but Maybe a life update. I've kind of shut things down to a degree over the summer with what I think and and am almost certain is a stress fracture of my my fifth metatarsal. So the 
the long bone on the outside of my foot. I started having issues with it back in May where I did the half marathon there at New River and got back to training pretty quickly. And it quickly became more and more sore where it was hurting to put weight on it in the morning. And me being the intelligent person that I am, continued to try to train through it. Mm. Um, so decided to, to essentially shut things down, but have also been stubbornly kind of testing it every now and then as well, which has somewhat prolonged my recovery, but still it's been nice to not have any stress and pressure to prepare for a race and to get out every now and then. So it's improving, but it's you know, stress fractures are one of those tricky injuries where you know, the only thing that heals it is, is time off. You know, and occasionally uh, you can put a boot on it to totally offload it and to let it rest and recover. You know, I haven't felt the need to necessarily go that far. And I've still been kind of putting in smiles every you know, two, three days of 30 minutes or so. It's, it's getting better. I probably could have sped things along if I had truly shut things down for a little bit. But, you know, at this point, again, only doing 30 minutes every second or third day, kind of judging how much or when I go uh, based on how it feels just walking around, particularly in the morning. It's, it's often, it'll be tight or stiff or a little bit tender putting weight on it. So, I'm encouraged that things are on the mend and I'll be able to start building some mileage over these next months with the weather getting cooler. But to be honest, I've kind of enjoyed not having any, any pressure to get out for some of these two hour long runs over the summer where it's been, uh, been hot and just kind of just doing what I can to stay fit over the summer. A couple questions for you then, Phil. Yeah. Uh, One with Chicago off the table. I know you had mentioned to me possibly, moving it back another month or so and looking at shut-in Ridge Trail Run. Is that still a possibility? Are you in the lottery for that? I'm in the lottery and I am accepted and we'll kind of see how the training goes to build up for that. I'm not pushing for any specific time or any specific performance, but that's such a fun race and such a fun event that, you know, if I can build the mileage up and get a little bit of fitness to at least successfully complete the event, then I'll, I'll jump in that. And if that's not in the cards, then I'll look at targeting something probably in the spring. Okay. Now, as I listen to you talk about the recovery, the question that's bouncing around in my head as I hear you talk, if if you were one of your patients, Mm -hmm. would you have prescribed a recovery plan that was at all like what you did yourself over the summer? Or... Do you think you made mistakes or are you pleased with it? Because to me, it sounds like, I mean, you were a bit disingenuous there, Phil. You left out the times that you've run up Paris Mountain. (laughs) (laughs) It sounded to me a bit like you, you probably have dragged this out a little more than maybe you would have if you really did want to get back healthy and training as soon as possible. Am I correct? No, 100%. I mean, it's, the balance of still wanting to get out, still wanting to get out there, still wanting to enjoy a little bit of running versus trying to get back to full speed as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, I, I have not done what I would advise, you know, somebody that's coming in as a patient to do, you know, from that end, if we look at the research and kind of best practice, essentially, you know, we shut things down until you're pain-free just walking around for five days. And then the next phase is get to where you're able to comfortably walk for about 30 minutes every other day without symptoms. And then 
building slowly with like a run walk progression that starts with this something as simple as like running one minute, walking nine minutes for a total of 30 minutes. And then building that up over a couple of, you know, three, four weeks to where you're running 30 minutes every other day. And once that feels comfortable and pain-free, then just kind of building, building mileage from there. Yeah, that's, um, that's good advice. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't know that what you did is all bad. I, I didn't raise that point to be critical. I just wanted to provide some clarity because uh, as you said, just staying active, you were doing plenty of stuff that wasn't loading also, uh, being on the mm-hmm. bike, those kinds of things. I, d- do you have any idea what might have been a root cause here? The short answer, I think, is you know coming off of that half. Well, two things. Number one is to some degree, just inconsistent training over the past, really into the spring. Yeah, you know, I'd have some weeks where I'd be up in the high 40s, low 50s from a mileage perspective with a two hour long run and a solid workout, maybe a second workout as well. But then I'd also have a week or two where I'd be down in the the low 20s. So that inconsistency and yo-yoing mileage, really, at some point, you're going to break down doing that, which that certainly happened in my case. And the other, I think, was coming back from the half probably too quickly and adding in you know extra workouts, trying to get back to full mileage, essentially training at a level of mileage that I didn't have the fitness for. Probably the combination of those two is what what ultimately led to to this. Yeah, um, a, good, a good reminder that the person who trains without consistency can be as or more injury prone than the person who puts in a high amount of volume. Yeah, you're, 100%. You're, right? You're stealing your body to prepare, to you're, you're callousing it by doing that mileage to, to handle the greater impacts. Okay, Phil. Well, I'm uh, I'm hopeful for November in Asheville at Shut-In Ridge mm-hmm. and optimistic knowing that the impacts there on the body are a little less than what you might have been preparing for at Chicago. So uh, hopefully we're getting training week updates from you again soon. I will go ahead and quickly go through my last seven days. This is a Sunday to Saturday that I have queued up This is probably a short-sighted and brash overstatement, but I think this is one of the best seven-day periods I have had in a number of years. And it really, it came on the heels of a really bad, (laughs) like four days. Uh, (laughs) We had really, really hot weather with some super hot, you know, dew points pressing around 80 degrees. I was supposed Mm -hmm. to have, um, the last Friday, I was supposed to have a medium long run and I just shut it down at 10 miles and quit and walked back. And I thought to myself, am I done with this sport? It was just one of those, <laughs> those moments where it, it hits uh-huh. so hard. Uh, but instead, I, I realized that I actually I made a great decision. I just shut it down. Don't dig a hole. Move on from it. Regroup. Took a day off afterward. And then we had a little bit of cooler weather coming. So this seven days that I'm going to go through, about six of them were with some really quite favorable weather. And that first taste of a false fall put a little energy back in my step. And also, I will say to a degree, at some point, you just have to be the person who believes in yourself. And you have to say, I'm going to take control of the training. I'm going to provide the proper mental focus. I'm going to do the other things outside of the training, eating, hydrating, sleeping, to give myself the best opportunity possible. And I felt like in this past week, I did that better. Uh, right. So try to stay on that consistent path moving well, forward. Go ahead, Phil, before I, I talk about the days. I also feel like kind of this this first week where 
we get that first taste of fall is almost a reward for all the work you've put in over the summer where you've had workouts and the heat that you probably aren't hitting the splits you want or mm-hmm. the longer runs you're struggling a little bit more. Whereas, you know, once that temperature breaks and your paces just automatically drop down because of the change in temperature, it's like, okay, it's like this, this is what I've been working for. We're looking forward to a nice, nice fall season of, of building your training going forward. Yeah. You finally see the fruits of your labors. And I can remember probably eight or 10 years like the first run I did that was on a cool, crisp fall day that was either a, mm-hmm. a harder session or a long run, that things just started to click again because of that mm-hmm. work we put in. Along those lines, Phil, one thing that I have harped on with some of our athletes who are building towards fall marathons is in that weather, also doing some hilly long runs that uh, mm-hmm. really really don't have pace as a central factor. Those, I think, help. They allow you to, I should say it this way, you're doing the work that allows you to do the work. It makes- Yep, that's a good way to put it, yeah. The longer stuff that's flat, the stuff that's at race pace, it makes it so much more manageable uh, when you get to that point in the season. Last Sunday, I had uh, a long run that totaled uh, about 23 miles at a 623 average. The beauty of this run, Phil, uh, one thing I loved about this, it was a good course. We had, again, this was like the first cooler day. I didn't get to run with my group that morning because of some family stuff. I was solo, but I had my watch on metric because I warmed up for 5K and then my goal was to run steady to the 30K mark. So 25K of just steady running. And I had the watch on metric and and I was completely miscalculating in my mind what I thought my K splits meant as mile splits. So that that 25K of running that I thought I was doing at like a 640 average, I was really doing at a 620 average, but it, it played such a trick on my mind. I didn't, I didn't feel like I was running harder than I needed to. And so that was the great sign of this, that I didn't let the anything dictate to me how I felt with these numbers. And and there's something to take from this for race day that we can so easily let a split on our watch, get us down or make us think we're better than we are on the other end. When I realized, well, I'm just not calculating this right. I totally forgot about it. I just didn't worry about it. That 25K had about a 10K stretch that was a steady uphill. For you as comparison, uh, and for a lot of our listeners who are still in that Greenville area, think about when you get on the um, Swamp Rabbit Trail and you get beyond, you get north of the Swamp Rabbit Grocery and out towards Furman and kind of that Mm -hmm. push up towards TR, climbed like that consistently for about about 10 kilometers of this run. So that was a nice steady uphill strength section. And then I did um, the last segment. It ended up being six point something K. I can't remember. It was what got me back to my car. It was like 22 minutes uh, as a tempo run at like 550 average. Uh, Came off of that the next day. This is Monday. A nice easy recovery hour plus yoga in the morning and then doubled a little over four and a half miles in 36 minutes in the afternoon. Split up Tuesday, about a little over nine miles in 70 minutes, then a nice really slow run at the park in the afternoon. Even with eight strides in 42 minutes, I was still under five miles. So it was beautiful, beautiful, easy easy recovery. It was fantastic. That's gentle. 
It was <laughs> it was very gentle. <laughs> Wednesday morning session with our group. We did something different, a fart like that we've never done before that I was excited about. It's 40 minutes of total action in which I averaged about, or excuse me, I totaled about seven miles over the 40 minutes, which makes the average around like 545 pace. So it was three sets of three by three minutes. Okay. The, the, the first two, okay. the first two, three minutes reps of each set were at about a half marathon effort. And then the third three minute rep, the one that ended each set was faster. 90 seconds between reps, two minutes between <clears throat> okay. sets. And so that all adds up to 40 minutes total floated the recoveries rather than jogging them. And this was super encouraging. Mm-hmm. I, I ran with a couple guys, uh, good friends of the show, who are targeting sub 240 marathons at the Columbus Marathon in October. Ran two sets with them. And then I was really just cruising the, the, the floats in between, felt good. And so took off a little bit in the third set and threw in a little gap there and closed really strong. Thursday, split it up into two uh, shorter runs. The, the longer run was in the morning. It was 49 minutes. Uh, in the afternoon, 45, that was all on dirt uh, at a park nearby. I like to uh, occasionally do that, uh, excuse me, that double that is shorter, nothing even reaching an hour. Uh, I think there's there's something to the recovery factor on, on yeah. these to get two good ones in. Friday actually moved around a session that was supposed to be from this week because it was it was like 50 degrees that morning. It was too good oh. to pass up. So it, yeah. it, it was crisp. Warm up plus a 10 mile progression run uh, on a bike path. The idea was to just be really controlled and then allow myself to push like the last two to three minutes. In some, the 10 miles was done at 59, 30 something, I believe. But it just started from kind of just steady running. There wasn't much to the first mile of this, but uh, I'll give you the numbers because it was a nice cut down 625, 17, yeah. 10, and 2. Then by the fifth mile, uh, this was an uphill mile, 559. Then we brought it back down before flattening out, 52, 50, 49, 45, and 528 to close it. Again, best part of this, Phil, was how good I felt. I spent nine-plus miles just feeling like I was cruising. It was fantastic. Just getting stronger through through the workout. That's right. Really easy, double 3.4 miles that afternoon on some dirt out at the wetlands area. And then took off on Saturday. So even with the day off, that seven-day stretch, which was really just six days of running, was something like 95 miles. And nice. The, the sessions were good. Again, none of them are fantastic. There's no real page turners there, but they were controlled. They felt good, and we're stacking from it, and away we go. So well, set, there you set go. Well, some contact. Anything, uh, anything in the plants for the fall? Mm, Phil. So or anything I, you're talking about. Yeah, there's a lot of things I'm planning. There's there's nothing we're going to announce quite yet, I'll say, Phil. Okay, uh, that's because, fair. <laughs> because um, there is one that is a certainty, but there was another. I, I was lined up for a, a nine-mile race this coming weekend, but due to some family stuff that popped up, I won't be able to make that. I did race a five-miler uh, two weeks ago that went well, and... I bring it up now because I think it's a, a great transition into our second question, because I felt like that five miler before it, I had done some really solid sessions. I, I was happy with them, but there was nothing I did that I thought in any way, am I at near my best? The five mile itself, I, I didn't run a spectacular time. 
but I was pleased with it based on what I thought I could do coming in. I thought if I run under 2730, I would be happy. And I ended up being just a few seconds over 27 minutes. So that's something like a uh, nice. 5, 5 yeah. 25 average, but I was able to run it as a pretty good progression. I started uh, more like 530 and, and cut down a little uh, with the exception of, of the fourth mile. More than the race itself, which the race was a blast. We had a lot of people from our group out there. We had a, a rare, beautiful August morning where it didn't get too hot. A lot of fast runners out there from elite teams all over the region. And so in that circumstance, it was cool to get an age group victory against really legitimate competition. Nice. Moreover, it felt like that effort, as we've talked about here a little bit, getting myself into a racing situation, knowing that feeling, having to dig when it got kind of tough, that was really good for me. And the level of effort felt like it was a Kickstarter on some fitness. And I think a, a race can do that at times. Uh, my example, when I look back, is just to go back a little over a year ago. I ran Lilac Bloomsday 12K in 2022. I had a great trip, ran a good but not earth-shattering pace. And I raced at an off distance, kind of like this five mile is, so I didn't go in with any expectations. Then seven weeks later... I ran almost an identical pace at grandma's half for a really strong race. So that leads us to our next training question. How should I best use prep races and how should I balance training through these races versus tapering? As I just mentioned, they can be a jump starter for improved fitness. And that assumes that you're going in already training well, mm -hmm. because, because these are the hardest workouts you'll do you'd likely never match your prep race pace in a training session. And frankly, you wouldn't want to often because you're spending a lot of mental and physical energy. Yeah, but there's a recovery cost to that. Absolutely. There is, yeah. But that prep race is the perfect substitute for those biggest sessions that you otherwise might do just a couple of times per year that really help you make a jump to the next level of fitness. You know, I think about it going out and doing five miles as like a threshold type run at 525 mm -hmm. for me would be very, very challenging. Could I muster it? Maybe. But I spent probably three plus, maybe in, well into the fourth mile of that race, feeling very manageable in a way that on a session day, I never would have. Uh, yep. So uh, to employ a prep race as a successful tool, let's create some guidance, Phil. Let me add a couple of comments with just off that five mile is that number one, being in a race like that, where you have some good competition around you can elevate how well you're running as well mm -hmm. versus you doing a, you know, five mile or six mile tempo effort trying to hit a certain, certain pace as well. And as well, just the you know, beyond the fitness, but the just the psychological training of learning to number one, kind of measure your effort over you know whatever the distance is, but also be able to to pour yourself out over that distance of the race is a is a skill that needs some practice and needs some refinement over somebody that may only race a couple of times a year. Just getting that repeated practice, even if it's an off distance to mentally prepare for, for whatever your A race may be. Yeah, that is uh, one of the pieces that's on my list, Phil. So we'll come back to that and touch on it briefly again. But you're right, the level of competition was great. It helps knowing that there's a, there were some pretty good gift cards on the line that I got to <laughs> get my hands on afterward. And actually, I, I knew there was a guy in my age group who is quite good, who I was 
pushing up on in the around four miles. And it did add mm-hmm. a level of motivation. And it helped me to work on what kind of move I make when I pass that person. You don't just get to that person and hang out and, and let them hang on. It's make a, yeah. make a definitive move. Uh, in that four mile, uh, excuse me, in that five mile, a couple other points I just want to add before we go on to our uh, guidance here on using prep races. One is listener of the show who I got to see for the second time, met at a race last spring, uh, had a big PR. So Chris Parsons, great work on a, a big time 8K PR. Uh, and then a guy from our group, I want to give a shout to Zach Zimmerman ran a 2404 for five miles and led the nice. way for our team. And boy, that, that's pretty fast. It was a yeah. beautiful morning for it. Okay. Let's uh, circle back then to some guidance on how best to use prep races. Number one, Phil, don't undermine the A race. This one to me is all mm-hmm. encompassing. It considers your health, the timing of the race. We'll dig into that more a little bit later. And the weather conditions, you know, what, what kind of effort are you going to put out if it's 100 plus degrees? So there's a, there's a lot there that'll be covered in all the other points, but it's just a reminder that if, if it's a prep race, do it as such. I'm not telling you not to race hard because in fact, I think typically we do, if we're going to line up for a race, we want to race hard, but keep the focus on the biggest goal that you have for the season. Well, I think that's a huge point. And listeners have kind of followed along, you know, both of our struggles at CIM this past fall, but I think that was a a mistake that I made. And, you know, looking back, I'd probably do it again because I still had some fun doing other races, but, you know, CIM being the A race at the beginning of December, you know, I did, shut in November, you know, month before, which was essentially a marathon effort. And then a couple of three weeks before that, I did that swim run race in in North Carolina, which was about 15 miles of running and about five hours total of of activity. So over the course of that training cycle leading into CIM, there's two big days, not only that took a lot of recovery, but there was taper ahead of that too, versus missing out on being able to successfully and continually just stack stack weeks on top of each other leading into CIM. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a good point though. Second here, pick something that brings great joy and motivation and fits into your life and your schedule. Don't travel for a race that interrupts everything about your life and feels like a chore. Choose it because you love it. We want to get on the line excited to run. I certainly had that feeling before my, if you want to call it tune-up or prep race that I I did several weeks ago. And this is also why I'm bowing out of the nine-mile race that I had really wanted to do previously (laughs) because it's on one side of the state. And then I would not only have to drive back to where I am, but across the other side of the state immediately after the race for a family obligation, it just doesn't fit. I'm forcing it. And so I need to step away from it because it comes with the travel scheduling logistical difficulties, uh, but also that puts a dent in my joy for doing the event. So mm-hmm. look at the, look at the schedule and not with, Hey, uh, Oh, there's a race on this day. That's a good race, but look at your schedule, both for racing training, and then also add to that life and fit something in accordingly. I, I think that's an important underlying piece that's often forgotten 
in designing our, ra- our racing schedule. We have to balance all the aspects of our lives. Third point here is you referenced this uh, a little bit uh, just earlier. Be exceptionally mindful of the sessions following your race. If you are going to race, particularly actually race hard, not just use it as a, a pacing tool, that endeavor is going to take so much out of you. And as you said, there's a recovery cost. For example, it might take an easy week for you to recover from a full rip at a 10K. Don't get stuck in your usual training cycle just because it's the routine. Mm-hmm. Also to that point, I often like to go with a hill workout as my next harder session after the race, however far away that is, because it's all effort-based. I don't mm-hmm. have to worry about times and I don't get quite the impact on the legs that I would get doing the work on the track. So that loading is a little bit less. A long run might be another good option for similar reasons, but very, very importantly, go back to the beginning of this point. Remember the time it takes to recover. Do not force a long run, particularly the day after the race. And that goes back to point one of this whole thing. Don't undermine the A race. That's a move that digs you a hole. I had an athlete that I worked with who who did this in the spring, had a bad 5K and immediately wanted to make up for it with a really hard long run the next day. Well, all that did was just cost us another week of training. And the bad 5K wasn't that big of a deal. <laughs> it was the first race of the season, you know? So, so the, cost, mm-hmm. the cost became more than the prep race was worth. Well, and you mentioned jumping back into training. Yeah, I think a lot of folks make the mistake of you know, using that prep race as, as a benchmark in terms of setting a target for their a race regarding a pace or whatever. But if that uh, prep race doesn't go to plan, sometimes a mistake is made where you know, the next workout, we need to up the training a little bit more to make up forward. Or if it goes well, then, well, we need to crank these paces down faster to accommodate what I assume is better fitness. Whereas, you know, really just staying in that consistent training groove with, with based on the feedback of, not just one race, but of a whole training cycle and the whole previous several months worth of work. And I think we can get in trouble almost punishing ourselves if the race doesn't go to plan. Yeah, that's really good, Phil. We're not necessarily adjusting our training paces just off of one race. We may do it though off of multiple races that indicate mm-hmm. it's a trend. But also, isn't it really valuable in our training to continue to do the same level of work but it comes with a, a reduced perceived effort. Our exertion mm-hmm. levels feel lower. That's also a sign that our fitness is developing as well. So you don't even have to start training harder, whether it, we do it at both ends of the spectrum, you're right, whether because it goes poorly or because it goes well. It could be the same training, but it feels easier. If I were to, to rewind to my training week that we just went through, that's the reason it was a good week for me. Mm-hmm. There's people who listen to this show who could do that same week. There's others that it would be a huge week for. The point is the context of where that falls within your scale of perceived effort. That's what made it good for me. I was able to execute that week with control. So those are great insights, Phil. 
With my fourth one, I'm going to go back to something that you mentioned already. This, for me, has been the greatest weakness over the past few years. When you talked about like point one had been your weakness leading into CIM, you undermined the A race with some other stuff that we tried to make it fit and work, but it wasn't ideal. In my case, this one's my weakness. So, So point four is the best reason for racing is to sharpen race specific skills. You don't get that mental and physical engagement at the same level in practice. And competition helps bring it out. And so ask yourself, what do you need to work on in the race specific skills realm? Is it as simple as your race morning routine? Is it more appropriate pacing within your racing? Or is it like dealing with the sting of how that actually feels in the closing miles and staying engaged? I think for me, that's what it felt like. And and it seemed as if I was able to make a a step forward, not in just kickstarting my training, but in kickstarting my my mental approach by racing a prep race that yes, it went well, but it put me in a situation that was uncomfortable and I otherwise might not have put myself in uh, mm-hmm. with, without it being a race day. Well, and I think that goes beyond, you, know, you mentioned it, but it goes beyond just learning how to measure the effort over the course, but also what does race morning look like in terms of you know, whether you have breakfast that morning, how early you get there, what you do for your warm up, and as well kind of the, the inner monologue that's going on, you know, in your case at the five mile race of how are you talking to yourself at mile three, at mile four to push towards the end and repeating what you want to get out of it, you know, out of a marathon when you're at mile 20 or mile 22, you know, it's things get hard at the end on both those distances. It's a matter of when that occurs, but practicing just that mental engagement for the race is really an effective skill to develop. Mm. Good. Next question, 5.5. How far out should I race before my target race? Keep that in mind as well. I would generally say that the farther the race that you're building for, the longer the race, excuse me, that you're building for, the farther out we are probably going to set our prep races, particularly if those races are longer as well. For example, a half marathon on the way to a marathon. That's a very common one. Uh, You don't have to do it. If you choose to do it, I've probably gotten a little more conservative for most people than I used to be. I might push it back a couple of weeks more than I used to. The people who are the most skilled racers and most experienced racers, they, they can handle something that gets you a little closer to race day. But you know, for, for the average runner, and we might want to make sure we're four to probably more like six weeks out to, to really benefit. Now, that changes if you're running, if your target, your A race is something shorter. I, I do believe for half marathoning, you could run a 10K uh, even within two weeks out. Uh, I, I do like that 14 day out point. I would say the same thing if, if you wanted to do the same thing for a 5K before a 10K, or even if you're, you're doing a 10K as your prep race before a marathon, uh, so let's take like a five mile, a 10K, a 15K as your your last big effort that's at faster than race pace. Yeah, two or three weeks out, I think that's okay. I, I don't see any problem with that. I, you know, w- we talked about this in a, in a taper workout episode a couple of years ago that 
10 days to two weeks out is common among some really great racers historically in the marathon distance, but they weren't doing long races that amount of time out. They were doing, say, a 5K, an 8K, a 10K, and they were consistent in their training and in high mileage and were, as the question was worded here, training through the race. It just substituted for a workout. That can work. But again, keep the A race in mind in determining how far out you're going to set up this prep race. Well, and I think that is really a very individual decision as well. You know, for Mm. somebody that is new to the marathon, you might want to do a half half marathon to get an idea of what an appropriate pace goal may be, but that's going to have to be a bit farther out because there's a bit more recovery cost to that. So, you know, even more than six weeks, maybe eight or 10 weeks out, because if, if, you're relatively new to the distance and aren't doing a ton of mileage for your training, there's going to be some recovery to that. Whereas, you know, in your case, putting in pretty high mileage, you can recover from that relatively quickly. Yeah. There's a a big difference between running a distance and racing a distance, Mm -hmm. right? We're talking about racing. Just remember the first time you ran a marathon, Phil, how your body felt afterward versus how it feels after you've done five or 10 of them and adapted to some degree. Uh, So if you're going to race hard at a distance for the first time, it it has more recovery cost. Number six is a similar question in how many times should I race? Not could I, or how many times do I have to? You don't have to race at all (laughs) leading in. It's, It's how many times should I race? And this, as you said with the previous question, is very individualized. But I I would again say in general, preparing for a shorter race, I might encourage more racing. Let's say you are prepping for a 5K as your big goal race. Since we're going into the fall, let's say maybe it's, it's a Thanksgiving Day race, 5K, 10K. 5K races could be your hardest sessions slash your prep races leading into that target 5K or 10K. Think about it on on a calendar of how often scholastic teams race. Often high school cross country races every week, uh, sometimes even midweek. Now Mm -hmm. that's probably too much in my opinion, but could you race every other week? Yeah. Colleges do that very consistently. Now as an adult fitting it into your schedule, maybe every third week, why not? I, I don't think there's anything to hold you back from that. Again, assuming these are races that you're motivated for that bring joy and that you can craft good training around. You might not race as much if you're prepping for a marathon, but if you really love to race and choose to follow that path, my advice would be those races become possibly your only harder sessions. Mm-hmm. Any any other work done is mileage, maybe medium long runs, maybe marathon paced efforts or tempos, and then your long runs, which could have quality in them as well. But I, I don't think you're going to do many other fast sessions uh, if you're consistently putting in 5Ks and 10Ks on your block on the way to a marathon. It's doable, but again, it's not can or have to. It's how many times should I race? Building off of that, Phil, point seven for me is the question of should I race it or should I pace it? So we get this question a lot of, you know, should I do a race at, let's say it's marathon pace, because that's the most common one. 
I think there's value to doing, you know, some people want to do like a half marathon at marathon pace, possibly. Uh, Again, I think when you get on the line, 90% of the time, I'm going to default to race, not pace. I agree. And I think as it relates to the 5K, 10K for a marathon, you know, to me, there's no question. Get on the line, practice that race mentality. Mm-hmm. You know, as it relates to a half marathon, there's probably some value of learning half marathon pace and that discipline when you're in a race environment so that you don't start out in a marathon going out all out, learning to kind of control that that effort. Mm-hmm. Um, but the shorter stuff, 5K, 10K, I don't know if there's a point in terms of pacing it. Just get there and, and practice racing. Then let's ask another question within this. Does a prep race allow you to better execute a long or challenging session? That might be the time to use it as a pacing tool. Mm-hmm. You, might, you might benefit from aid stations, mile markers, packs to run in for a long marathon session, for example. And in that case, if you're going to follow that path, be sure to execute it with discipline and control. You might be able to just do one of those workouts better than if you're on your own on a cold day on a bike path somewhere. But with that said, there's something to doing those sessions on your own on a cold or hot day on a bike path somewhere, because you very well could end up on your own on race day. Last point to the portion of the question about, do we train through it? Do we taper? We learned last year from those extensive case studies of elite athletes that we dove into for multiple episodes, that a mini taper can be highly effective and not undermine the training. Mm -hmm. So if you want to give a prep race, a real poke and try to determine fitness in a way that informs future training, while also perhaps building some confidence, three to four easy days leading in are probably enough to give that race a fair shot at running your fastest. And in the context of your training, three to four easy days between if these were just workout sessions, it's not a big deal. It's probably just adding an extra day to your normal schedule. I see no reason why you couldn't just cut back and really race it hard. Again, there's a place for just plugging it right into your training cycle. But if this is truly, uh, you know, I want to take a swing and really race this, yeah, an extra easy day or two. And the global context of who knows, four, five, six months of training in a cycle. Yeah, that mini taper to me is okay. I'm, I'm all right with that generally to allow you to give yourself the fairest shot at running your fastest. I agree. And I think that duration, you know, three, four days is enough to let the fatigue come out of the leg so that you can race a truly honest effort and have an idea of where your fitness really is. Mm -hmm. Okay. Good discussion, Phil. Hopefully we uh, unpack that well enough to help our, our listener best prepare for future A races. We have a bunch of shoes to review. So we're going to split this in half based on the time of how much we've covered so far. And we will have more shoe reviews next time. So for today, I'm going to get into two super shoes that I've been using lately because that always generates a lot of interest in our inbox on super shoe questions. So I'm going to take you through the Saucony Endorphin Elite and the New Balance Super Comp Elite V3. And then we'll turn it over to Phil. Phil's got the recovery shoe breakdown for this week. He's got a good one. 
It's a super bedroom shoe, man. Yes, it is. <laughs> uh, okay, so first let me go into the Saucony Endorphin Elite. This was a spring release. I just got into it this summer. I want to thank the good people at Saucony for providing a size 11 and a half in the new kind of soft pink, orangish colorway. I got one here for Phil oh, to look at on the that screen. That is beautiful. That yeah, is it, your color there, Travis. It's a good looking shoe, Phil. It really uh, is, man. Yeah, they call it like Mars or something is the name of this colorway. I don't okay. even know why, but at sample size, it weighs in at 7.2 ounces. I will say that the initial impression is it feels even lighter, and that's because the upper is so light on it. Uh, our our brains deceive us with light uppers into thinking that the shoe is even lighter. Mm -hmm. uh, it costs $275. It falls in a class that I, I might call now the super duper shoes. As you see it competing with these high stack racers that are targeting long races like the marathon. So Nike's Alpha Fly, the Mizuno Wave Rebellion Pro, uh, Adidas Adios Pro 3. It is definitely that biggest stack marathonist of the marathon shoes. It has an mm -hmm. eight, eight meter, eight meter. That's an enormous drop, Phil. That's huge. <laughs> try, try running in that, Phil. Partner uh, shoe, man. Yeah. High heel. Uh, I look good in that. It has an eight uh, millimeter heel to toe offset and it uses Saucony's most advanced foam to date. That is the Power Run HG, which the company purports brings a remarkable 95% energy return. And I will say it, it feels bouncy. There's no question. It features a spork shaped plate that fans out at the front. This lets it cover more surface area. It's a bit more stable as well because of this. And I think something else here underlying this technology is it meets the user's strike more naturally. You're not immediately forced propulsively off the plate in a straightforward direction. If you are like myself, a supinator, you can kind of roll a little bit through your strike with the plate before it snaps you forward. Phil, I did a progressive medium long run of 14 miles a hilly 20-mile long run, and my five-mile race in these shoes. And I have to admit, I slept on this shoe at its release. It is very, very, very good. I tried one on in a size 11 back in the spring when it was released, and it, it <laughs> felt a little too narrow. I was concerned about it being too firm, but I decided I'll give it another shot at 11 and a half. And I'm glad I did because it's now on my short list for next marathon shoe. It will be interesting. The, it'll be on the short list for people who in particular like a firmer feel in their marathon shoe. Let me start with the good. It is, it's ultra light. As I said, the featherweight upper makes it seem even lighter. The ride is exceptionally stable given the resilience of the HG foam. Uh, and moreover, the foam, it doesn't feel remarkably bouncy when you're just walking around in it and it feels a little firm. And that was my first impression from the spring. But when you start to move at pace, this thing just pops. And the, huh. the, the forefoot rocker is really aggressive and fast. Not running at that quicker pace in tandem with being in a half size small is what left me with that tepid initial impression, but I've changed my <laughs> mind. There's no question. The stable ride is really key for me as I've 
had some heel and Achilles niggles that we've talked about here uh, in the more narrow super shoes or those with the really, really compliant foam. I kind of like having just like a minor nick as I'm testing these shoes out mm-hmm. so I can see how it reacts to it. Because honestly, like at worst, I'm dealing with like a one or two out of 10 kind of discomfort. Mm-hmm. So I can still do my normal training. When it disappears in a shoe, a certain shoe or appears in a certain shoe, that's a real sign for me. To me, that's the sign that that shoe is going to work very well with your biomechanics and with your with your stride. If you, know, you can cover up a an injury or a niggle with how that assists your your stride. Yeah, uh, to build on that, Phil, I think the eight mil, not eight meter drop, is helping here as well over that like, mm-hmm. longer run test because. I think some of the like soleus tightness down into the Achilles is what's pulling a little bit on the foot and heel. Uh, And so that eight mil drop might be a sweet spot just for me in a racing shoe. Some possible cons here, the tongue folded over on itself in all of my trials. Now, (laughs) in each of those settings, I did not notice it while I was running. I never noticed that the tongue had folded over until I was taking the shoe off. It is a firmer foam. If you were to use a a durometer scale, among the super shoes, I'd say it's most comparable to the FF Turbo Foam that's in the Metaspeed Sky Plus from Asics. And when you combine that with how aggressive the plate and rocker are in this shoe and the plate position kind of close to the foot, I am a little bit uncertain if it'll start to feel harsh over the marathon distance Mm. and cause some foot fatigue. And so that has me a bit nervous. Uh, I am going to get it out on a longer, like marathon pace, long run to really determine that. But it does have me certain that this is truly a racing model for me, not the one I'm going to put on for the weekly long run when I'll sometimes use a super shoe. I I just think it's it's too much. And we both felt like those earlier iterations of the Endorphin Pro could be a bit harsh. We've had that conversation. I don't have the same concern here. It's not quite to that level, but it's definitely not as democratic of a super shoe as the most recent Endorphin Pro where they softened the foam some. Yeah, that was going to be my first question. And you may get to this, but how, how does the softness, how does the rocker, how does the platform feel relative to the endorphin pro. Yeah. I would take this shoe to race in, in a heartbeat over any iteration of the endorphin pro. Uh, And I'll say that I think that to be true for me at any distance. Okay. It feels, I guess, as that underfoot feel is closer to those earlier versions of the endorphin pro. But the thing is those shoes didn't quite have the pop and the stack (laughs) and the aggressive rocker that this shoes does. So this shoe just feels so much faster. That's a really hard comparison to make because it feels so much faster. It's a shoe that when I put on and I did that medium long progression in it, I kept, I, the progression runs are the only time that I put my watch on auto split. So I see what I got for the previous mile. Normally I just let it run and then check it at the end. I just have, you know, stopwatch going. Mm-hmm. And every time it clicked, I kept thinking to myself, I don't feel like I'm working that hard. And that's like the, the sign you want in a super shoe, right? Where you're running. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The effort feels like less. Uh, and it particularly, I was on some rolling hills that day. And when I got on some more downhill, that four foot rocker, being so aggressive. I mean, man, that thing was popping downhill and, and I had to, to, to control it, to execute it well, because it was very aggressive on the downhill overall, really good shoe. It's fun. 
it's for someone who likes a firmer super shoe. If you're in that category, it's top of the line. Let me give it a marathon style long run and decide if it's my racer, but it's in the conversation. As far as racing, we've talked in recent months how I've really enjoyed that uh, Audios Pro 3 from Adidas. I think this is the better racer for me. But for a long run, I'd much rather be in the Adidas. It's comfy. The rods aren't as aggressive as this plate. I have evolved in my opinion on super shoes now to this point. I have simplified how I grade super shoes, Phil, because there's so many more good options out. Mm -hmm. It's not like half a decade ago when you had the Nike and everyone else was behind. There's enough now where shoes are at or close to that same level of the Nike where people can pick based on what fits, feels, works for them. So my simple baseline test is always now. If I raced in this shoe at X distance, would I feel like I could come up with an excuse why it didn't go well? (laughs) And to me, this shoe from where I raced in it at five miles, it would not be the shoe I'd put on for a 5K. Okay. I have some other options for that. And one of them we'll get to next week, but five miles and up and in particular, more like 10 mile half marathon. I don't think you'd come up with an excuse. You, you would say, no, it put me in position to run my best. Mm-hmm. And that's all you can ask for. I'll add yeah. like, at that five mile race, I was the only person that I saw up in the uh, start area. All the elite runners kind of went to the front and I got just, I just tucked into the back of that group. And then there was kind of a big gap. It was almost like two different races were happening. Big gap back to the community <laughs> fun runners who felt very intimidated and un- uncomfortable. But as I looked around me, I did not see anyone else in this shoe. I did see some endorphin pros, but I didn't see anyone in this shoe. And my mentality in that situation, if you get on the line like that and you're the only one in your shoe that you really like is not to say, why am I the only one wearing this? Is this other stuff better? But to say, maybe I have the advantage. Maybe I'm in the better shoe because I feel most comfortable in this shoe. Well, and I think you're right in terms of the current state of super shoes and that five years, five, six years ago, it was Nike and then everybody else was playing for second. Whereas anymore it's as much finding something that is comfortable that gives you the level of cushion that you want that has the level of stability that you want out of that ride and then being confident that what you have is going to work very very well for you and you're not going to be at a disadvantage over whether that's nike whether that's asics or whatever but that there are a lot of good choices out there Yeah, 100%. I'll get a second super shoe now. That uh, This one's been out even a little bit longer. Thankful for our friends at New Balance providing me with the Super Competition Elite version 3. This is the follow-up to what they previously called the RC Elite, which was a bit of a lower-to-the-ground, more traditional-feeling super shoe that I had always really enjoyed for some sessions and some long runs. I've done three sessions in this shoe as well. A a 40-minute fartlek that was from this week, as well as a 10-minute progression that, excuse me, 10-mile progression from this week that we discussed. And then I did do uh, a 20-mile long run with some marathon pace work in this shoe. Phil, within about 10 minutes in this shoe, I asked myself this question. I might've said it out loud. I can't remember. I was 10 (laughs) minutes into a fartlek. It's hard to know. Is this possibly an ultimate long run shoe among our current super shoe options. 
Like, is this the mm-hmm. one that's going to feel best for long runs for the most people if they want to be in a mm-hmm. plated shoe? Because it has a wonderful soft feeling, but it's not a mushy feeling. The upper is the knit upper is really comfy. And like the Saucony Endorphin Pro 3, it feels like a very democratic super shoe option that could work for a lot of people. So the the specs on this shoe at sample size nine, it weighs in at seven and a half ounces. So it's a little heavier than that Saucony that uh, I just discussed and a touch heavier than most things at the, the front end of this category. It's not heavy by any means, but it's not gonna be your lightest option. It's a four mil drop. That's 40 at the heel, 36 at the forefoot. And it has New Balance's wonderful fuel cell foam, which I've loved in uh, the Rebel, for example, as a lightweight daily up-tempo trainer, full carbon plate. The closest comp I was told coming in, this came from uh, our New Balance tech rep, as well as a fellow runner, was that had some of the feel of the Flyknit version of the original Nike Vaporfly 4%. So not, not mm-hmm. any of the next percent stuff, but go all the way back to yeah. the original super shoe with the, but the fly knit upper version. And since many folks have raced in that model, I'll use it as a point of comparison. Did you have one of those, Phil? No, I went straight to the next percent. Okay. So you never ran in that. Good. This was the original breaking two project shoe when they changed the upper on it. That was kind of the first update they did to it. Mm-hmm. So to compare the SC Elite version three with that, the SC Elite is a bit wider in the base. And so it's a more stable shoe. And that's their big advantage. The Nike could feel like a high heel for some runners. Um, right. It was when I made the eight meter drop misstep earlier, misspeak. It could feel that way to some people. It could feel uh-huh. like you're on a, a high heel of sorts. However, the New Balance, it is a bit heavier. It, it's also not as aggressive you don't have that propulsive feel and pop to it. And although that might be the con for racing, especially shorter races, this shoe's not going to stack up against that Nike stuff, say at 5K. Uh, that gap might close and yeah. lengthen the distance of the race. So while it might be a con for racing, it also is part of what makes this potentially a great feel for a long run or a long quality session. So I'll be interested really to see the durability in this after I put a lot of miles on it, because I'm going to do a lot of long runs in this shoe. Uh, And that'll be a good look back. Yeah, it sounds like something you want for almost week in, week out, putting that that weekly long run in versus your marathon racer. As we've mentioned, those super foams, that's part of what makes these shoes valuable in just reducing the impact on our bodies for the longest runs. It's why we are using them in those circumstances. We're not using them every day, but we might be going to them once a week. Uh, This just feels like it, it ticks that box wonderfully. And even with my concern about it not being quite as aggressive or propulsive, I hit my marks in those sessions. So it's certainly serviceable at the faster paces. It shines most at the speeds of longer race distances or maybe slightly slower. Like, you know, I I know we don't have a lot of people running out there running road 50 Ks, but it just feels like, yes, that's the niche. You would run in a shoe like this. (laughs) Um, That's the sweet spot. Yeah. It carries a price tag of $230. Like many of the models in this category, you can expect a big update next year with the version four. There is going to be an interesting overhaul with version four. It's an Olympic year. 
And I am very excited to see that because early impressions from some New Balance athletes are that it's another big step forward. And as much as I liked this shoe, if they tackled a couple of these little issues, the next one of these could be really fantastic. The question that first comes to mind with you being in this, you know, you mentioned with the Endorphin Elite having that eight millimeter drop really working pretty well for your Achilles niggles. With this one being a four mil drop, how does that ride feel versus something that has a little bit larger heel to toe offset? I noticed uh, on the longest of these runs when it had some marathon pace in it, I I did notice like the calves are working a little bit more. Now I would add that that was on a a very hot, humid day. So it's hard to know what impact that's playing the plate in this shoe. And this was also my first impression and a shoe we'll talk about later another time. The trainer version of this, the super comp trainer is the, the plate can almost disappear under your foot at times. And so that's maybe why it's not so aggressive, but that's also a compliment that I don't, I don't feel it. You know, some people have certain uh, foot shapes in certain super shoes. They'll just feel that plate just jabbing into their arch, right? It can be very, very uncomfortable. Never had that feeling. Four mils, we've talked about this before too, like take a Clifton at a five millimeter drop. You go to it even with your Achilles concerns because of the rocker shape. And so that's the piece uh, here. I'll show it to you on the screen, Phil. Here's the shoe. You know, they put right there in the midsole, right at the arch, what they call their energy arc. Uh, Yep. That is, it's essentially creating some of that propulsion, but also rocker shape to it. Mm-hmm. And, and so I don't necessarily notice it a great deal, but it's there. That difference between four and eight millimeters is just noticeable. Okay. Okay. All right. I have more for next time. We're going to do trail. I got another racer. There's more fun to be had, but I'm going to let Phil finish it up today. Phil is going to review one of my favorite shoes on the market, the recovery slide from our friends at Ufos. What do you got, Phil? Oh, man, this was one that when it came in the house, my wife was wondering what the heck I had brought in. (laughs) Uh, But I I got it probably two months ago. Partly, you know, I talked about the the foot injury I've been having this summer. To have something around the house that could offload the foot, give me a little bit of cushion, give me a little bit of protection. And man, this thing is so comfortable. It's the, uh, the UFO slide, which is basically they make them in a slide model. They make them in a a flip-flop version. It's to me, a perfect house shoe in that it is very cushioned. It itself has a bit of a forefoot rocker, which wouldn't think you really wanted in a bedroom slipper, but you know, especially for something to put on after a long workout or dealing with a foot or Achilles issue to just offload that when you're walking around the house helps. I won't say it helps with recovery, but it sure does make padding around in the afternoon feel much more comfortable. And it has a decent amount of support is too generous of a word, but cushion underneath the arch and stability to the lateral part of the foot where you, know, you don't necessarily feel like you're flopping all over the place in these things, but that your foot is cradled in that, in that shoe. So I have, this is something I have really enjoyed just haven't done anything in them besides walk around the house, but it is nice to toss that on in the morning when you're a little bit stiff or to put on in the afternoon after a big workout to, to help ease those niggles. I have mine on right now. <laughs> this shoe, this, this shoe is an absolute A plus Phil. Oh, I, 100%. I, I, 
I can't name it like shoe of the year because we do that for stuff we run in, but Uh (laughs) it's so fantastic. If I am not in a running shoe, I am in this. When I Mm -hmm. get home at the end of the day, I put this on every single time. Uh, I prefer, as you said, the slide version over the flip-flop. I do think there's something to just like uh, being held in place a little bit more, Mm -hmm. but also for folks who maybe have, uh, maybe you're dealing like in your case, Phil, with some metatarsal issues on the forefoot and having to grasp around that that flip-flop front might be a little work that could create some forefoot fatigue. I don't know. I would say probably as far as being stylish, the flip-flop might be a more popular fit, particularly for the ladies. They do not make these in half sizes. I am an 11 and a half in my shoes. I wear an 11 in this that fits well. It is uber comfortable. I can't recommend this one enough. This would be a good time for me to put in a a plug for our sponsors at Columbus Running Company, where you can get the full line from UFOS. I will say, you know, as far as a con on this thing, you know, I think the durability is going to be there, especially if you're just using it around the house and you know, in the driveway. In clinic, I have a couple of older patients that come in in these things, and it makes me nervous because that front end is, I won't call it floppy, but it it can catch every now and then. Yeah, like tripping uh, up. You mean you're afraid for people who are, I could see that. Yeah. Maybe they already have balance issues or they shuffle around a little bit yeah. more. Yeah, yeah so if, if you toss these things on at the end of a long run to run around the grocery store before you head home, I think that's fine for somebody that may be you know, has some balance issues. I I do not like this just because the the front part of the toe can potentially catch and potentially trip you up. But outside of that, these things are phenomenal. I'll add that same caveat about all the super shoes that I've been reviewing, Phil, because I would say <laughs> that's probably shoe there. That is probably true there as well. Okay, Phil, let's wrap it up there. This has been a long one. It's been a great discussion. So we'll come back with a few more shoe reviews next time. Also, we will have uh, shortly for you the next in our series on Road to LA 1984. Uh, We are at the 40th anniversary of the 83 World Championships Marathon. So that's the next big race we'll dive into, both the race action and the athletes, the training behind the scenes, Mm -hmm. all of that beautiful stuff. So look forward to sharing that with you as well. Phil, it's been fun. We will see. As always. Yeah, buddy. Next time, mile 158 here on Seconds Flat. Everyone have a wonderful week. Hopefully, at least up here, maybe last really hot week coming at us for a little while. You might have to wait a little bit more, Phil. But uh, uh, We got a few more weeks before I get too excited. Yeah, we're on the precipice, bud. So That's right. Enjoy the runs, and we will talk to everybody soon. See you later.